I left you with a bit of a cliffhanger last time. Hopefully it was more of a hook to get you to hang with us for this message this week. In my talk last time, I shared with you that we, human beings, we are born believers. We know this is true because every human culture throughout all of known human history has defaulted to religious expression in one form or another. And they still do today. Every culture that you study today, you will see that they have religious ritual and form that they, they fall into. Everybody does it. We also know that this is true because all of us are by nature religiously oriented. Modern social science validates this. Cognitive anthropologists and clinical psychologists have been able to see through their research and their experimentation that this is a reality. We are not, as many modern atheistic naturalists try to purport, merely socialized into belief or socialized into religion. As much as modern atheists have hoped that post-enlightenment that rationality and reason would lead to an increase in irreligious societies. The opposite has been true. Yes, there are people in modern Western culture who claim to be, as I talked about last time, spiritual but not religious, or they say that they are religiously unaffiliated, but they are nonetheless religiously non-religious, and they are still groping for transcendence, just as the scriptures say. And not only are people groping for or seeking for transcendence, trying to connect with something bigger than themselves, trying to connect with the divine, but people are trying to connect with everlasting life, with eternal life. Billions of dollars are currently being spent by some of the most well-funded private equity firms on human life extension projects. There are literally tens of billions of dollars that are being spent on this. Some of the greatest minds in technology and pharmacology, biology, nanotechnology, genetics, gen gene editing, cybernetics, uh, cryogenics, and many other STEM fields. Many of the greatest minds in all of these STEM fields are working on the cure or reverse for aging. And if they can't cure or reverse aging, then they wanna upload your consciousness into the cloud and make it possible for you to live forever in some sort of digital format. Who knows how that will work out, but there's all kinds of money and research that's being put into this. And if this sounds like science fiction, it is, but it isn't. Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle, or Elon Musk, who helped found PayPal and then founded SpaceX and Tesla and The Boring Company and Neuralink. Peter Thiel, who also was a part of the PayPal founding. Larry Page, who is one of the head guys, founder <clears throat> at Google. They're just some of the notable billionaires who are investing in life extension and trying to cure aging. Why is this? Well, it's clear. We want to live forever. Human beings are born with this desire to live forever, and they are born with a desire to connect with the divine. We are born believers. It has always been this way. It will always be this way. You cannot escape nature. To quote Lady Gaga, you're born this way. Th this is how it is. And I, I shared about this last week, and I went on to share last time that we were created by God 
to live life in connection with God. God made us in his image. In the image of God, he made us male and female. He made us to experience perfect communion and community and connection with him and with one another, which we'll talk about probably next time. But the New Testament book of Romans chapter five, Paul says in Romans chapter five, verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Our disobedience brought evil, brokenness, division, suffering, and death into the world. We are born desiring connection with that which we cannot have because of the effects of indwelling sin, what Christians for centuries have called original sin. Now, I know that there are differing opinions on the doctrine of original sin. Are we born innately fallen or evil, or do we become fallen or evil by our active participation in sin? Personally, I, I do think it's kind of a moot point. I have my own opinions about original sin, but it's kind of a moot point because all of us will inevitably sin. And if you think that children are born innately good, then you've probably never had any children or spent a lot of time with small children. We are born desiring a connection with God but we are born separated from him. And all of our religious expressions, even the non-sacred or the non-religious religious expressions of 21st century Americans, all of them are cheap and ineffective substitutes for true communion and connection with God. They never fully cure, remedy, or repair, or resolve the problem of sin. They don't take away the stain of sin. They don't remove the guilt and the shame that is associated with sin. And they don't bring us back into harmony with God and one another. So we have this huge problem. That's where I left you kind of with a, a little bit of a, a hook at the end last time. It may not have exactly been nice of me to do so, but I guess it's part of my fallen nature. So I'm sorry or not. But my, my whole point in this is to bring us to this place where we recognize that we have a longing within us. We have a desire to connect with that which is divine, to transcend this world and connect with God. But we are separated from him and we want to be brought back into that connection. So how can we repair the breach? That's where I left everything last time. How can we be brought back to God, be reconciled to him? How if suffering, separation, and death are the result of sinful disobedience. How can we reverse it? Well, I hate to break to you, we can't. Not by our own efforts, not by our own good works, not even by our religious rituals or our non-religious, non-sacred practices. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, says Paul in Romans chapter three, verse 23. And it is by the deeds of the law that our sin is revealed. No flesh will be justified. We cannot be made right with God by our own good actions. We cannot fix the problem of sin by our own efforts. Though humanity has been trying to do that for millennia. Ever since we were sent out of the Garden of Eden, we've been trying to create ways to get back to God. That's religious endeavor. And even though we live in a culture where people say they're spiritual but not religious or they're not religiously affiliated, they are still involved in doing various things to try to get back to the divine or experience 
eternal life. So if we are in this desperate situation and we're all trying to get back to that, but we can't get back to that, what then? What, what are we going to do? Are we, are we simply hopeless? In one respect, yes. If you joined with us a couple of weeks ago when I started this series on life and connection, I, I began in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, and I, I read from Ephesians chapter 2, th- verses 14 through the end of the passage. But just before that, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, the Apostle Paul says these words, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, and Gentile speaks of those who are separated from God, they weren't a part of the Jewish people who were in relationship with God as his people. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, in the body, who were called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, made in flesh by hands, or made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. Let me read that again. Having no hope and without God in the world. Hopelessness is a part of this story, but it's not the whole story, but it is a reality. It's the bad news that we all need to reckon with. Today, I want to focus in the time that we have left on how this hopeless story gets turned around. But first, remember this. We are hopeless without God. We are dreadfully hopeless without God's intervention. Here's the small beginning light of hope that comes to us also in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 begins like this. It says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. That's our hopeless, dead, sinful condition. This is who we were. But then look at the next two words in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. But God. Those Two final words are our hope. And in many ways, the life in connection story hinges on those two words, but God. But the story actually began much earlier in the Bible than in Ephesians chapter 2. The story began much earlier than the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It began before the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah predicted the coming of the one who would bring us this hope. It came before the psalmist, King David, prophesied that God would show us the path of life in Psalm 16, verse 11. The beginning of this light of hope was given by God immediately after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. If you heard my talk last week, then you know that we ended in Genesis chapter 3, reading verses 1 through 7. And right after the point of Adam and Eve's failure to obey God's command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden and they hid from God. They were connected with God before they sinned, but they were ashamed of their vulnerability and their nakedness after their eyes were opened, after they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result of their sin, they they hide themselves in guilt 
and shame. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, all the way back there at the beginning of the Bible again. Genesis chapter 3, at verse 9, we read this. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? That's disconnection. They, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as God had commanded them that they not eat of it. And their eyes were open. They saw that they were naked and they, they sewed fig leaves together. They hear God in the garden. They hide. And then God comes looking for them. And he says, Adam, where are you? They are now disconnected from God. Then in verse 10, we read, so he said, Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Again, proof of guilt shame, separation, and disconnection. And then in verse 11 and 12, we read, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Well, there you, there you did it, Adam. Um, That'll definitely cause some division between the man and his wife when you throw your wife under the bus and put all the blame on her. But he doesn't only blame her, he blames God. It was the woman that you gave me. She's the one that did it. So um, Adam is just like continually swinging at strikes here. And as all of this unfolds in Genesis 3, God begins to speak to Adam and Eve about the resulting curse of their sin and their disobedience. And he first addresses his attention to the serpent that deceived Eve. And God is speaking to the serpent in Genesis chapter three in verse 14. And he says this, because you have done this serpent, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is poetic language spoken from God to the serpent, the one that had deceived Eve. But the interpretation is pretty simple of this poetic language. The serpent the personification of Satan deceived Eve by twisting the word and command of God. And she and Adam ate of the tree from which God had forbidden that they eat. Therefore, God says, here's what's going to happen, serpent. There's going to be enmity between you and the woman and your seed and her seed. But one that is born of the woman, a male, he he will bruise or crush. The word bruise there could also be translated crush. He's going to crush your head. You're going to crush his heel, but he's going to crush your head. There's going to be a male child that shall be born of a woman at some future point, and he's going to deliver a death blow to Satan. Though he's going to be superficially wounded himself in the process, I'm sure you can understand that a crushing blow to one's heel is much less of an issue than a crushing blow to one's head. So our hope is built upon the promise of deliverance from God the Father. That's where this hope that we, we were looking at all the way back there in Ephesians chapter 2, where we read that we were dead in trespasses and sins, but God. There's our hope. And we read about hope in the Gospels, and we read about hope from the prophets. But here, all the way in Genesis chapter 3, we are given the first glimpse of hope. Our hope is built upon the promise of deliverance from God the Father. And this came immediately after the fall. 
for you theology nerds that are watching this, um, in verse 3, when we read this verse, verse 15, this is referred to by theologians as the proto-evangelion. That comes from the Greek word uh, protos, which means first, and euangelion, which means gospel. And so this is the first mention of the good news of hope for hopeless humans like us in the scriptures. Life in connection with God was broken by sin, Genesis chapter 3. But God, he has promised deliverance and salvation and reconciliation. But for that to happen, first, there needs to be a rescue mission. Because I already said, we cannot reach up to God. We cannot build our way up to God. So how is this going to be reversed? If you were here a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday, I gave a message from Luke chapter 19, and I talked about a tax collector who was named Zacchaeus. In the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus called for Zacchaeus and he dined with him. And, and as he called for him, all the multitudes of people, they challenged Jesus for doing this. They saw this tax collector Zacchaeus to be a worse sinner than any of them. Tax collectors were synonymous with like adulterers and extortioners in the time of Jesus. And so they hated tax collectors, the multitudes did. So then they see Jesus going to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, they said. And Jesus, in response to the, the multitudes, he explains his actions in this way. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 19, he says this in verse 9. Then Jesus said to him, to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For, verse 10, Luke chapter 19, The son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus came to the earth on a mission to rescue lost, sinful, and hopeless humans. And it is Christ's joy to do so. It's not like God is up in heaven doing a divine face palm over our lost condition and then frustrated that he has to try to sort out the mess that we have made. That is not the picture that the scriptures give us of God. In fact, as we prepare to close our time today, I want to pull back a few chapters from Luke chapter 19, where Jesus met Zacchaeus, to Luke chapter 15, where Jesus gave three stories, which I believe reveal the heart of God as it relates to seeking out lost things like you and me. And remember, this is quite a bit before Jesus met Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And we read this in Luke's gospel in chapter 15. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees, these are the most religious people in Israel. The Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. This is an amazing thing. Sinful people, the really lost people, or maybe I should say the people that knew their lostness. Sinful people drew near to Jesus. There was something about Jesus that attracted broken, lost, and sinful people to him. And hopefully there is something about his people, Christians, that does the same. Unfortunately, that hasn't been our experience in American culture for a while. And that might tell us something about how we as Christians are perceived. It might tell us something about how we might need to change. Um, so something to think about just in this, that Jesus 
was attractive to sinful people. They wanted to be around him. And he was repulsed by the most religious people. So the really religious people, they complained that Jesus interacted with sinners. Just like Zacchaeus, several chapters later, in Luke chapter 19, the people said, how could he possibly go to be the guest of a man who is a sinner? So Jesus told them a little story, three stories, in fact. And I'm just going to read through the first two of these three stories, and then I'll spend a little bit more time on the third. Now, these may be familiar stories to you, especially the third story. They are the stories of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or the prodigal son. And before I read these stories, keep in mind the context. Jesus is telling these stories to very religious people who were angry that Jesus was spending time with lost people. And with that in mind, we read this in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness to go after the one which was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, his lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, that likewise, in the same manner, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, in the same manner, I say to you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus came from heaven to earth on a mission to find and rescue lost, sinful, and hopeless humans, those that were disconnected from God. Jesus came on this mission to bring them back into connection because that's what we were created for. We were created to be in perfect communion and connection with God and we're separated by sin and we can't make our way back to God even though we long for it. So Jesus comes to the earth to seek and to save that which is lost, to restore us back to connection with God. So those are the first two stories that Jesus says. Final story, the story of the lost son, the prodigal son, and it is a, a favorite of many. We read this in Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me my portion of goods that falls to me. Give me my inheritance. So he divided to them as two sons, his livelihood. And not many days after the younger son gathered together all that he had journeyed to a far country. And there he wasted his possessions on prodigal wasted living. But when he had spent all there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine, pigs. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the, the swine, the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? 
And so he said, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. This is considered by many to be one of Jesus's greatest stories. And there are many lost sons and daughters that can identify with this story. Some of you that are paying attention, though, recognize that the story keeps going. The father in the story had two sons. And the storytellers know that you never add a character to a plot line for no reason. So we read this about the second son in Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safely and soundly, your father has killed the fatted calf. But the other son, he was angry and he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might be merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. Remember the context for Jesus telling these three stories. Jesus is telling these stories to very religious people who were angry that Jesus was spending time with lost people. Jesus came from heaven to earth on a mission to find and rescue lost, sinful, and hopeless humans. And sometimes the really religious people forget this and they get angry when lost people show up or when they bump into lost people. Jesus is on a mission to reconcile people to himself. That was his purpose, his purpose statement. We saw it in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He has a vision. Jesus does. He, he tells us of it. And you can read it in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. Jesus gives us a vision of multitudes of lost people reconciled to himself. And he calls us to live life in connection with God, one another, and the world. We are called to the same mission with Christ. That's why this is our mission and vision at Cross Connection Church. Life in connection with God, one another, and the world through Jesus. Father God, I pray that you would cause this mission, this purpose, this vision to be in our hearts. And Lord, that you would stir us to want to follow you in this, to imitate you in this, and to be those who are reaching out to the lost people of this world. And in reality, even the very religious people are often very lost. 
But we live in a culture right now where people are constantly trying to better themselves. They're trying to better themselves through diet and exercise and meditation and all kinds of different things. None of those things are going to satisfy ultimately. None of those things are going to overcome the stain and the shame and the guilt of sin. None of those things are going to restore us back to you. And so, Lord, we're, we're surrounded by a lot of people who are in desperate need of your good news. And I pray that you would cause us, your people, your church, to be in some way more attractive to lost people, that they'd be drawn to us and they would want to know about the love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things, the fruit of the Spirit, they would want that in their lives. God, do a work in us. And in the same way that you came to this earth on a mission to seek and to save that which is lost, to find lost and hopeless people, God, help us to be, Lord, compelled to join you on that mission to live life in connection with you, to live life in connection with one another, and to extend that to people in this world. This life, this abundant life that comes only through you. Every person we come in contact with, they desire it. They long for it. And so, God, I pray that you would stir us to be able to share this good news, this gospel with others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.